got to a place you had no idea where you were going because Abraham didn't have any idea where he was going. So he didn't listen to the voice of his culture. He didn't listen to the voice in his own head. Um, you know, surely Abraham, if he's anything like us, and I think the scriptures tell us that he is pretty much like us, that there were some fears and there were some questions, that there were some conflicting emotions that he was going through, but he didn't listen to those. He listened to the voice of God and he went out. I want to tell you a little bit about my story. On June 14th of 1992, my life was changed in a pretty dramatic way whenever I dove into a swimming pool and hit my head on the bottom and I broke my neck. And in that instant, I became completely and totally paralyzed. And at the time, I was 18 years old, and I had just graduated from high school a few months or a few weeks before that. And man, the world was before me. I could go anywhere I wanted to go, do anything I wanted to do, be anybody that I wanted to be. And I had big ambitions and big dreams of how I was going to make my mark in the world. And then suddenly, all those hopes and all those dreams just came crashing down. Up to that point in my life, I, my whole identity was built on my physicality. Uh, I was an athlete. I loved playing sports. I was a good athlete. And I loved stressing my body to the limit. I loved you know, playing team sports. I loved um, doing individual things like running long distances, lifting weights, being out, outdoors, hiking. And it was how I felt alive using this body that I knew God had given me. And suddenly I couldn't use my body anymore. And so I really struggled to understand who I was as a person. Um, my mind was filled with all kinds of questions and all kinds of doubts and fears about how I was going to be able to make it for the rest of my life. Now, thankfully, I had a lot of people around me who were encouraging me to cling to God. And I tried my best to do so. I sought his face. I read his word. I spent hours in prayer trying to confess my sins and pour out my belief that God could do something, expressing my trust in him in the hopes that he would heal me. But despite my best efforts, as the weeks turned into months and the months turned into years, I felt myself drifting further and further into a place of despair. And I was filled with all kinds of questions like, God, why did you let this happen to me? God, where are you right now? God, have you rejected me? Have I been so bad that, that you've washed your hands from me? Um, why haven't you helped me, God? And there was this terrible conflict going on inside of me. On one hand, I knew that my only hope for making it through life as a quadriplegic was to put my trust and my confidence in the living God, to, help, to have him sustain me and uphold me all my days. But on the other hand, I was angry at God, and I was frustrated by what I perceived as his lack of response to my prayers. And so I had all these conflicting thoughts and emotions. I had grown up believing, being taught by my family that God is good, that he loves me, that he's for me. But our culture, I was in college at the time, and the, the professors in my college were telling me that God didn't exist, that he was a figment of our imagination, just a man-made myth. And so I was at that place where I was kind of questioning whether God even really was true. I mean, he hadn't, hadn't shown up for me yet. And so was he real or was he just a figment of my imagination? Our culture at the time was telling me that I didn't need God, that I could make my own way, that I could take care of myself and follow my own um, feelings. And honestly, I really felt myself drifting that direction. Now, thankfully, I continued going to church and I continued reading my Bible. It was just something that was kind of ingrained in me. But all along the time, I was, I was getting weaker and weaker in my faith. 
Um, and I was becoming more and more kind of belligerent of God, questioning things about who he is and becoming more and more impatient with him. And so I was drifting towards turning away from him and just turning my back, washing my hands of God and going out of my own. And part of the struggle I was having was that there was this incredible feeling of loneliness. I felt as if I was all alone in the world, that nobody could understand what I was going through. My friends that I had grown up with, they had all gone off to college, and I was left alone at home. And there was nobody. There was nobody that had a situation similar to mine, no one that I felt I could talk to. And so I was angry at God because of that, because I felt so alone. And one night I was in bed, and I'll kind of fib and say I was praying whenever the reality is I was chewing out God. Um, I was kind of telling him all the things I didn't like about him. I was uh, expressing all my frustrations and all my laments. And much like Job, I was kind of demanding that God show himself, that if he was real, that he should come through for me and prove that he's real. Now, I know that you can't force God's hand like that. But in this particular instance, God was very gracious to me, and he came near. And I'm laying in my bedroom railing at God, and all of a sudden I just am consumed with this overwhelming feeling of a presence has now entered my bedroom. I didn't see a light, I didn't hear a voice, I wasn't filled with a vision or anything like that, but there was a sense, a very palpable sense of a heaviness that had come into my bedroom, and I was filled with terror. Um, the hair on the back of my neck was standing up, um, my heart was beating real fast, and I, I didn't know what to do, and so I just kind of was frozen there while I was laying in bed, wondering what this was. And then all the fear that was in my heart slowly started to dissipate. I was flooded with this great sense of peace. And as the feeling lingered for a while, I began to discern that what this was was God had come near to me. And he was trying to communicate to me that I wasn't alone, that he was there, that there was someone who understood what I was going through. There was someone who felt my pain, and it was he. And so that, that little experience with God really left me with a choice to make. It really, it, you know, I, I could have succumbed to the despair. I could have followed my, my own emotions. I could have gone after um, what, you know, all those, all those things like turning my back on God. It's what I really wanted to do, but now God had come near. And so I had this choice to make. Am I going to hang with him, or am I going to turn my back on him? And I think each and every one of us in here face a similar decision at some point in our life. Our circumstances may be a little bit different, but we all face a similar choice. Um, are we going to trust in ourselves? Are we going to trust in our wisdom, in our own feelings? Are we going to trust in what our mind is telling us? Are we going to trust in our planning or our efforts? Are we going to trust in what the culture tells us, what our world says, all these philosophies and mindsets? Or are we going to trust in God and allow him to guide us? That's what I ultimately chose to do. And so I think Abraham, much like I had learned to do in that instant, was to learn to, tr to listen to the voice of God. The second thing I see from Abraham's life that I think correlates with our story is that Abraham trusted that God would provide. God told Abraham that he would make him into a great nation, that if Abraham was willing to leave his family and walk away from his, from his culture and all that support system that God would do a new work inside of him and that he would create from Abraham a whole new community. God promised that he would give Abraham descendants. I mean, because you can't become a great nation 
without becoming a family. And you can't become a family without having descendants. And at that point, Abraham had no descendants. And he was 75 years old. 75. How many of you know any first-time, any 75-year-old any first-time fathers? You know, there's not a lot out there. Um, Abraham was well beyond the prime parenting years, and he knew it. But still, he listened to the voice of God, and he trusted that God would provide. He put his confidence in God that God would provide a family in due time. Now, we know that after about 12 years, Abraham got a little impatient with God's timing, and he tried to manufacture a child for himself. In that particular instant, he did listen to the voice of his culture, and he listened to his wife's urgings, and he slept with Sarah's servant, Hagar, and they had a son, Ishmael. And Abraham thought that it was through Ishmael that God was going to fulfill his promise. And so it's interesting to me that here in the scriptures we see this preeminent example of someone walking in faith who still struggled at times to figure out how to walk you know, in faith with God's timing. Sometimes God's timing is so hard to endure. It's so frustrating and so confusing because we don't see the answers that we're expecting from him. And sometimes we feel as, as if we got to help God out just a little bit. But in his grace... God came alongside Abraham and he said, no, that's not, that's not the way we're going to do it, my friend. I'm going to do a new thing in you, a thing that no one else can do. And I'm going to give you a child through Sarah. So again, Abraham believed God. He believed that God would provide him a son through Sarah. And he continued walking with God for another 12 years. And so by this time, Abraham is 99 years old and he still has not had a child with Sarah. Um, and so how many of you know any 99-year-old first-time dads? How many of you know any 90-year-old first-time moms? It, it just doesn't happen. But I think that's the point entirely. God was going to do something that, that just couldn't be done. Um, it was going to be something that would demonstrate to everyone around that this is a miracle child. This is something that God has done through these lives of these two people whose bodies are as good as dead. I want to tell you a little bit more about my story. So after that experience of God coming near to me, I, uh, I had a spiritual renewal, a real rebirth of my faith, and I began pursuing God and chasing after him with a real fervor. And along the way, I began to feel God nudging me to go into ministry. And so as I, after I graduated from college, I went into seminary. And after about two years, I graduated. And right when I graduated, my parents... Um, got an opportunity to come down and to start working at Highland Lakes Camp just right up the road. At the time, I was living with my parents. They had been my caregivers ever since I was injured. Um, you know, it's, it's, kind of, it's, it's kind of hard you know, or, or awkward to describe, you know, what my life is like. So I always say that I, really I'm like an overgrown infant. Um, anything an infant needs, that's what I need. I need somebody to help take care of me, to to help me get cleaned up, to get my clothes on, to get up for the day, all that kind of stuff. And so my parents had been my caregivers for all those years. And so I had a choice. You know, am I going to stay in Dallas and try to figure this out, or am I just going to go with them? And I felt led to just go with them. And so we came down here to, the, to Spicewood, Texas. And in those days, man, it was the boonies. <laughs> um, I mean, there was, out, you see now, the hills are all filled with houses and the highways got four lanes with a big old median in the middle and there's traffic everywhere and you can't get to the grocery store it's crazy 
Back in those days, there wasn't nobody here. And, uh, and there were no prospective women. Um, you know, <laughs> that was the main thing to me. Ever since I was a child, I knew that there was one thing in life that I wanted, and that was to be a husband and to be a dad. I always wanted a family of my own. That was so deeply ingrained in me because I had, had, had grown up in such a great family. And so I'm looking around. I'm saying, God, there ain't no women out here. How in the world am I going <laughs> to, you know? And so I faced that temptation. Am, am I going to manufacture a relationship for myself? You know, the world was telling me, well, just go into Austin. Go to some of those clubs or bars. You'll meet somebody there. But something inside said that wasn't God's best for me. And I also faced that temptation to go chase some women in a singles group. And so, you know, there's a lot of churches around that got singles groups. And I thought, well, maybe I can go beat the bushes there and see if I can find one. But again, I, I just didn't feel real comfortable with that. So I just, I just felt led to just, okay, just wait. And so I was content for several years, six years or seven years, to just wait. And I kept telling God, I'm trusting you, God. I'm trusting you. You know, you've provided for me all these years. You've taken care of me all my life. And so I'm just going to trust that you're going to provide me with the right woman at the right time, the one who's crazy enough to step into this mess called life with trust. And that's exactly what he did. <laughs> my turn. So my part of the story, I grew up in Maine, if you don't know that. Um, and I, much like Tress, I grew up in a household where I knew who God was, I knew who Jesus was, and you just, just had a very kind of calm, easy life that way. I was the oldest of four children, and so by the time it was time for me to go to college, I was ready to get out of that house and to get out of Maine. Any other oldest in here know what I'm talking about? <laughs> That's right. So, um, so I went to Massachusetts for college and stayed there a couple years, and, but funnily enough, I just wanted to go back to Maine. So I just kept waiting for the right opportunity to go back to Maine, and it finally presented itself. And so uh, 24 years old, I moved back to Maine and ended up moving into my grandmother's house, where she was, she was renting it and looking for a new renter, and it was perfectly timed. And so I moved into her house, and it was right across the street from my parents' house, on the street I grew up on, family all over the street. It was like our little compound. And so I was just really happy to be back there, very content. I had a great job that I loved selling power tools of all things and just mm. loved it. Um, had a church I was connected with and friends. I mean, I wasn't looking for anything different. <laughs> I was not looking for anything new. I just was happy where I was. And um, But I was all the while praying for a husband. I had a very specific list of character qualities that I was looking for. I was pretty picky in dating. And so... Anyway, so my grandmother approached me when I was about 27, and she said, I need to sell my house, so I wanted to offer it to you first, and I'll help you finance it. And I thought, that's, you know, I'm not going anywhere, so this is a really good idea to stay in the family. I'm happy here. You know, I was very content. But I said, let me just pray about it, and, and I'll let you know. And so I was quite surprised when I started praying for it, and I felt like God said, don't do it. You're not going to be here. And I thought, well, that's not the answer I was expecting. So where does that mean I'm going to be? And so that launched me on a two-year journey of just trying to figure out, well, what's God's plan for me? If it's not here, then I need to figure out what that is. And so through a lot of different circumstances, Austin, Texas became really clear that that's where I was supposed to go, which was really strange again because I didn't know anybody in Austin, and I'd never been to Austin. So there's no reason why Austin should have come up, but I was, I was really positive that's where I was supposed to go. So 
29 years old. It was March 2009. I packed up all my stuff and moved down here to Austin. Um, eventually met some friends, got an apartment, and just trying to figure out where God wanted me. He'd, he'd made it really clear to me that I was supposed to move for marriage and ministry. He gave me three M's, move for marriage and ministry. So that's what I was doing, and um, but didn't really have a lot of specifics. But got into my apartment in Austin and and then just felt like, you know, I should really sign up for something like eHarmony. So I did. And, you know, online dating had become popular just a few years prior to Kate moving down here. And, man, I, there was, I had no interest in that. And I figured the people who used online dating, they'd live with their mama in their basement or something, you know. <laughs> I mean, I didn't want none of that. And so I was refusing to always sign up for some kind of online dating. I had a lot of friends who were trying to encourage me to do so. Finally, one of my good friends, Leanne Diaz, back there, thank you very much, Leanne, she basically threatened me that if I didn't make a profile for myself on eHarmony, that she was going to do it for me. <laughs> and so I had a choice to make, you know. So I began praying about it, and, so, you know, suddenly I felt this release inside that God, it was as if God said, okay, now's the time. And so I went on eHarmony, and I filled out this profile, wrote all about myself, and uh, at the very end, I, I said, full disclaimer, and I wrote all about my injury, wrote all about what life with Tress would look like, all my limitations, all the needs that I would have, and stuff like that. And I was just content to leave it as that, and I wasn't going to chase any women. I was just going to see if there would be any nibbles at what I had written. And so I just kind of pulled back and just sat there and wait. <laughs> and I was crazy enough to do it. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> I'll just say this about, you know, his profile was so different than everybody else's. He wrote about the love for his family, his love for Jesus, and he just put it all right out there. And I'll say if he hadn't written those things, I probably would have passed right by it because of what he wrote about his injury. But there was something in me that just said, there's something special about this guy, and you should not hold his injury against him because it could happen to anybody at any time. And so I... I said hello. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so we started communicating a few months or a few weeks later we went on our first date. I think it was June 5th of 2009. We went down to Shady Grove together and Kate was so, you know, nervous about meeting me that she brought a chaperone along and so the three of us went on a date together <laughs> and, uh, and we sat there in that restaurant for three hours and just talked and felt a deep connection with one another. And, it, you know, I, we, I just knew that there was something special in this. Mm -hmm. And I knew on our first date that this was the man I was supposed to marry. Mm -hmm. So so we continued dating for a while. And, you know, eventually, a couple months later in, into our relationship, as we got more and more serious, um, we faced another dilemma. Kate's mom basically demanded that if I was going to move forward in my relationship with her, that I had to come to Maine um, to meet the family. Now, I had not traveled on an airplane since I was injured. Um, I had been receiving subscriptions to magazines, you know, disabled magazines, and there was all these horror stories about people's wheelchairs being lost or broken or shipped off to Timbuktu. And I wasn't, I was like, I don't want to do that. And so I was pretty concerned about traveling up to Maine, didn't know how I was going to do it. And I think she just wanted to put me to the test. Because she didn't just want me to come to Maine. She wanted me to come to Maine and then to go out to an island 20 miles out in the ocean. And so, you know, just like, how in the world are we going to work this out, God? And then one of the main things that we were struggling to figure out was, who is going to do all my care? Because, you know, maybe if we were on the mainland, I'd be able to find a nurse who could come and do my care. But 
we're going to be on an island out in the middle of nowhere. And so how's that going to work? And we tried and tried to figure this out. We had built this relationship online with a couple um, who had a very similar story to ours. They were the same age. The guy was a pastor. Uh, they were strong believers, and he had an injury the same level as I did. And they had written this goofy book called 101 Reasons to Marry a Quadriplegic. <laughs> and it was pretty silly. Things like, things like front row parking. And, you know. <laughs> yeah, you can, I, can, I can take his wallet, but he can't take mine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, stuff like so it, it, was a, it was a great book. And so we, we basically called him up and said, okay, here's the dilemma. And uh, kind of shared with them where we were at, just trying to see if they could give us any pointers for how they did these things. And the guy's name is Tim. And after I finished sharing with him, he goes, dude, she's just going to have to see you naked. <laughs> <laughs> so here's, I'm a pastor. You know, Kate and I are seeking the Lord. We're believing that he's brought us together. And so, you know, we're trying to be pure in all this. And we're like, so that thought never had crossed our mind. <laughs> That's pretty much what we chose to do is as if Tim gave us permission. Okay, that's, that's cool. He's a pastor after all, so <laughs> why not? <laughs> so my parents, my parents invited Kate to come in to live in our home in our spare bedroom, and they began the process of teaching her how to do my care. And there's nothing more awkward than seeing your boyfriend without clothes on in front of his parents. I'll just tell you. <laughs> so. But she was a trooper. You know, she, she held strong. I'm still here. <laughs> and, uh, and so a few weeks later, we got on an airplane and flew up to Maine. And then we got on a little puddle jumper and flew out to this island and landed on this skinny little dirt runway surrounded by trees. And there was all these 20 or 30 faces staring at me out of the plane window. That's my family. Yeah. <laughs> and the house that we were going to be staying in was not accessible at all. Um, and so they were gracious enough to make a ramp and stuff like that. But in order for me to get into the restroom, I basically had to go through the house, naked as a jaybird, into the bathroom. And so you would think that her family would give us a little bit of privacy in that kind of situation. But they didn't. That's not so, true. <laughs> yes, it is. No, they were not. sitting right there in the living room. <laughs> they were all hiding their eyes. <laughs> oh. It's a small so, house. Anyways... <laughs> We spent about two weeks out there on the island. I had a great time. By the end, we just knew this was something that God had done. And so Kate and I were married about seven months later, and it happened to be 364 days from the day she arrived in Austin. And so we just believe that God has orchestrated our relationship, that he did provide. We trusted him, and he provided the perfect mate for one another. We've also believed that God had children in our future, and so we tried unsuccessfully for a, years, a few years to have kids, you know, the natural way, and just weren't unsuccessful. So we ended up adopting two children. We stepped into foster care because some of our friends had done so, and, uh, and God brought the perfect children into our life. Benjamin and Abigail are a joy, and they really are the perfect children for our family. And we're so grateful for the way that God has orchestrated that as well. You know, most adoptions take more than a year, sometimes almost two years. Ours took something like nine or ten months, ten months. something like that. Mm -hmm. And it was super easy. And so, we, you know, we, we trusted that God would provide, and just like Abraham, and God did indeed do that. 
Last thing I want to share real quickly, and I know we're butting up against the end of time, and I'll try to keep this short. But the third thing that I see from Abraham's life is that Abraham understood that this world is not his home. I want to read from you, or read for you from Hebrews chapter 11. Um, the writer there says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Faith is what keeps people going when they're on this journey, and the answer keeps coming back. Nope, you're not there yet. And then in verse 2, this could be a summary statement about Abraham's life. It says, Indeed, by faith, our ancestors received their commendation. It was because they lived by faith that they were able to lead lives that delighted God. And then the writer of Hebrews began to talk about some of these examples of faith, and Abraham gets the most play in this chapter of everybody. In fact, he takes up a full third of the chapter. And when we get down to verse 8, we read this about Abraham's life. By faith, Abraham obeyed. And in that little phrase, you began to see this connection between having faith and being responsive to God or obeying God. They're just two sides of the same coin, faith and obedience. And so he says, by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. In other words, he was looking for God's new community. All throughout the Bible, the city is used as an image of the community that God has planned for, his, for human beings. And so Abraham was looking for God's community. Now we look down at verse 13, and this is kind of a summary of Abraham's life and all the other lives that have been recounted so far. And this is what we read. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having, having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. So it's apparent to me that Abraham identified himself as an alien and a stranger. He knew that he was on pilgrimage and that he couldn't be stopped. He wouldn't be distracted from this journey that God had set before him. His whole life was one long, not yet. Now, Abraham was not an infallible person. And the writer of Genesis makes that very clear. He's very open about his flaws. But the thing that marked Abraham was that he just kept going. He kept trusting God and moving forward in faith. Um, he would often make mistakes, but he just kept moving forward, trusting that God would provide and, and, and heading towards that city whose designer and builder is God. I want to tell you about what God has been doing in our lives lately and where we think that he's, um, what, what, we, what he's going to be doing in our lives in the future. Kate and I, along with several other people in here, just finished going through Catalyst 3. And if you haven't um, engage or jumped into the Catalyst program. It's a it's a wonderful thing, a wonderful experience. In the third semester of Catalyst Three, the whole purpose is to help you understand how God has wired you, um, the the spiritual gifts He's given you, the personality He's given you, and 
and the calling that he's put on your life. Um, and so in the process of walking through that curriculum with our various small groups, you know, we, we had some soul searching to do. We did a lot of prayer and spent a lot of time in contemplation just looking at what our life had been like and, and asking God to kind of speak truth into us in our current situation. And I basically had to admit to myself something that I already knew um, deep down inside but had just failed to admit, and that is that I had been languishing for the last several years. Um, I had been living for several years in a safe place kind of stuck in a rut. Life was so easy that I didn't have to trust God. I was able to operate in trust power, not Jesus power. And so, you know, that, that's just, it was, it was a safe and easy life. And I was comfortable there. And um, I really didn't want things to change. I had a great home. I had wonderful friends all around me that I knew loved me and adored me. I had a great fa uh, church family and a job with a consistent income. Life was so easy. Um, but I had to recognize that in that time, I really wasn't living in the way that God wanted me to be living. He wants me to live in faith and to put my confidence in Him and to do dangerous things with Him, to engage in this world, helping to expand His, his kingdom. And I've just been kind of sitting back here twiddling my thumbs in my safe little environment. And so we began praying about this and asking God, you know, what are you what are you doing in us, God? Why have you awakened this in us? What, what would be your plans for us? And Kate and I, after several months of prayer, began to discern that, that, that we believe that God has, is calling us to leave One Chapel Lake Travis and to go up into Maine and to, and to make a new ministry there. Um, we'd be leaving here where we have a strong support system, but going to a strong support system up in Maine with her family. And... Uh, and so we don't, there's a lot of questions that we have. You know, it makes really no sense for us to do this right now. Some of you know we're in the process of building a house. And so you don't just up and leave when you're building a house. But we feel so strongly about this that, that we're willing to say, okay, we're just going to put this house on the market and we're going to follow your leading, God. We don't, there's a lot of unanswered questions. Um, we don't have a job. Um, Kate does at L.O. Beam, but I don't have a job. We don't have anything promised to us, but we're believing that as we step out in faith that God's going to do something incredible in our lives. Um, something that we've talked about pretty much the entire time of our marriage is that we would love to do ministry together. If there's anything in the world we could do, if money was no object, we would want to do ministry together. Um, specifically, we'd like to do something surrounding marriage um, where we could pour into people's lives and help to mentor and counsel them um, as they're going through their marriage struggles. Um, and so we're going to be going up to Maine to engage with a church up there. And there's, like I say, there's no, there's no position available for us yet, but this is a young church that's really growing. Um, up there in the Northeast, it's kind of a godless place. There's not a lot of churches around. There's not a lot of emphasis on God. But God is doing a remarkable thing in this church called East Point. And um, he is expanding the kingdom there you know, pretty, pretty rapidly. Tons and tons of people are getting saved. A lot of new young families. And we've been talking with them over the last couple of years about you know, some of the needs that they had. And one of those needs is someone to come and kind of guide and, and support these young married couples. And so... Kate and I are stepping out in faith, believing that God has empowered us and gifted us and for a specific purpose in life.
and we're going to chase that down. It's a little, little hard to turn loose of these things here in this world because it's so good right here. I mean, we love it. We love it right here in Spicewood. Love our friends. Love our church family. Um, but we're having to realize, you know, we can't hold so tightly to the things of this world. Um, we look at Abraham's life and we see that he held tightly to God, which meant that he held loosely to everything else. Um, I'd like to ask you to do an honest assessment of your life right now. Um, as honestly as you can, what is it that you are holding on to so tightly that is preventing you from joining God on this journey? What is it or who is it that you're holding on to so tightly that it's preventing you from being fully engaged and fully responsive to what God is calling you? Kate and I are stepping out kind of, terif- kind of, kind of fearful and concerned, but we believe God's going to do something. And so we want to encourage you to step out, to not hold on so tightly to this world, but to, but to seek that kingdom who's des- who, uh, or that city whose designer and builder is God. Some of you here today are probably distracted from your journey. Um, God has called you to great acts of love or service or generosity, and somewhere along the way, you just kind of got parked on the side of the road, and you're sitting there now idling. Well, I want to say to you, it's time to get back on the journey. And that may look like you getting involved in some kind of a ministry using the gifts that God has given you. Maybe that means some new adventure in giving or sacrificial living. Maybe it involves sharing your life and your faith with someone who doesn't know God. Maybe it involves some kind of a cross-cultural ministry, maybe inner-city ministry or ministry in a different nation. But it's time to get back on the journey. Then some in this room, you've been on the journey for a long time. And frankly, you're just worn out. The truth is, that we are all children in here. And we all get frustrated whenever we hear that answer, not yet. Sometimes we get cranky, we get a, little, um, get a little anxious, and we start fighting over who's violated whose airspace. Um, and I just want to say, my friends, it's worth it getting in on, the, in on this journey. The journey is worth it because we are traveling as individuals and as a family toward that city whose designer and builder is God. It's the new community that he's, that he's building. It's his dream to which we travel. And uh, this, new, this new community that's meant to bless the world. And so it's not about living safe and comfortable in our own little bubble, but it's about getting out and impacting the kingdom and making God's name great all throughout this world. And so that's our story. I'd like to pray for us. Father, I want to thank you for my brothers and sisters in this room. They have been so special to me personally as well as to all of our family for several years. They truly are a gift from you. And you know the turmoil that we've gone through as a, as a family trying to discern your will for us. Um, and God, we, we just pray, uh, pray for our church family, Lord, that that these friends that we have here, these loved ones um, that have poured into our lives, that they would know 
um, that, that it's not because of any unhappiness that we have here, but it's because, God, we, we believe that you've got something great for us. And I pray for all of us in here, Lord, that, that you would strengthen us to turn loose of the things of this world in order to seek after you and to pursue your kingdom. God, you're so good to us. Um, you speak into our lives. You provide for us. And you have something great and extraordinary prepared for us. Um, not, a, not in this world, but something that's out there. And we are seeking after it. So God, do a work in our lives this morning, we pray. And I ask this in Jesus' name.